So verse 23, we'll start there. That's kind of where we ended last week. And then I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. 2 Kings 17, verse 23. Until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuttah and from Abba and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire of Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of the Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day they do according to the earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, and to him you shall bow yourselves down, and to him you shall sacrifice. The statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forever. You shall not fear other gods. The covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget. 
nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not listen, but they did according to their earlier custom. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. Their children likewise and their grandchildren as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Amen. Now last week, we were looking at the lessons from the captivity of God's people to and in Samaria, or in uh, Assyria. And I, I just uh, review that just quickly here with you. Number one, we saw that idolatry was one of the principal reasons that the people of God went into captivity. Idolatry was the fundamental sin that led God's people to be disciplined by the Lord. They broke his covenant by serving and worshiping other gods. Number two, they conformed themselves to the surrounding nations. They made themselves like those who were non-believers, who worshiped idols. And Romans chapter 12 tells us as Christians that we too should not be conformed to this world. Number three, they had disregard for the regulative principle of worship. They, Israel disregarded the regulative principle of worship in that when they did serve the true and the living God, they often did so in a way that was not prescribed by God in scripture. And this is called the high places. Many times we have seen that little refrain in both Kings and Chronicles where it is said that so-and-so was a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he couldn't get rid of the high places. He didn't deal with the high places. And we see that again and again and again. And that became a stumbling block for Israel. And it shows us that we should not only serve the true and the living God, but do it in the right way. Number four, there were secret sins. Verse nine last week said that there were secret sins in, in Israel. That means that holiness in your home matters. Holiness in your own personal life matters. John Owen has said, you are who you really are when you're alone. Who you really are when no one is looking is who you really are. And holiness be, must begin inwardly. Jesus has made this point in the New Testament when dealing with the Pharisees. He said, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup. But he said, you need to start with the inside of the cup. Clean the inside of the cup and the whole cup will be clean. Number five, uh, they disregarded the prophets that God had raised up. And that's a warning for us that we not disregard the ministers and the elders not in ourselves inherently, but only insofar as they bring the Bible to you. That is, we're not an authority in and of ourselves, but nevertheless, we are to minister the Word of God, and insofar as what we teach and preach is according to the Scriptures, that should be heeded. And that means that what we do, uh, for example, children, is very important, that we're not just to... Um, sit and allow our minds to drift, 
But we're trying to we're trying to focus, even if Pastor Boyd is boring, and sometimes Pastor Boyd is boring. And and some, yes, there have been occasions where I have bored myself. <laughs> I I remember many years ago, one evening sermon. I thought I can't wait to finish this sermon. I am I am boring myself up here. Even if that's the case, you're supposed to be sitting there thinking, Lord, help me. Give me something from the scriptures. Uh, We are supposed to be listening for the word of God uh, as the word is being preached. And and so uh, don't disregard the preaching of the word, even if the minister is having an off Sunday. Number six, rejection of God's covenant. They rejected the covenant of God. And this means that they forsook the covenant that was made in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The people of God, prior to going into Israel, made a covenant with God, and later generations rejected that covenant. And God had told them, if you disobey me and you disobey the covenant, I'm going to expel you eventually out of the land. Now, he didn't do that right away. He was very patient. He, you know, I mean, 200 and, what did we say, 270-some years you know, God dealt, since the time of Jeroboam, God was dealing with Israel. Jeroboam was the first truly wicked king. Uh, and here we are in 722 B.C., and God finally has had enough, and he, he is driving them into captivity. Uh, number seven, they murdered their children. Child sacrifice, verse 17, is one of the reasons God sent them into captivity. And, of course, that has applications, I think, for prenatal murder in our own country and why it needs to come to a quick end. Um, you know, I, God is merciful and he's long-suffering, but man, alive. I, I, when I think and meditate that what we do in this country in destroying the image of God and the, and, the, and, the pri- and the parading of homosexuality and things that we know destroyed nations, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed Israel, and we have nuclear weapons today, uh, and I'm not saying that to, you know, get apocalyptic, but, you know, God is holy. He is as holy today as he was back then. And, and I, our nation really needs to wake up. Um, there's nothing that says God will not destroy America in the Bible. I remember as a kid, I, one of my friends in fifth grade told me that the Bible said that God would never allow America to be destroyed. And I was like, oh, really? I, I'm a fifth grader. What do I know? You know? And there's nothing in the scriptures that says that. Uh, number eight, divination and enchantments. They turned to sorcery. As they moved away from God, they, they didn't in some ways become less spiritual, but they, they, their spirituality became more depraved. So now uh, what I want to do is today look at a kind of a strange story, but nevertheless one that I think is important, and of course it is because the Spirit of God has left it for us in the history of, of Israel. And that is what happened after the captivity. Now, in order to understand verses 24 to the end of this chapter, in chapter 17, you have to understand that the nations in uh, Assyria's day, and later they'll do similarly in Babylon's day, uh, but maybe to a lesser extent, is this, that once Assyria takes hold of the ten, ten northern tribes, Assyria does two things. Number one is they take the Jews and they remove many of them, if not most of them, out of the land. 
and they bring them and they settle them in other cities in Assyria. In addition to that, that's number one, in addition to that, they then take various people groups of nations they have conquered and they settle them into the land. As one commentator on this chapter put it, that it is a sad thing when the land of Canaan becomes a heathen land. But that's what God did in his judgment. And that can happen to the church today. If the church is not faithful, God may make his church a heathen place. Even though they still call themselves a church. And, and you, what you have are people who are foreigners to the covenant. Sitting there in, in God's land. So we see here that the king of Assyria, boys and girls, so you understand, he's taking the Jews out of the land of Canaan. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because the land was a, was a, was a promise of heaven. The land represented a typological promise of eternal life. And to be removed from the land in that day meant in a sense, theologically, you were being removed from the promise that you would be in heaven. Now that is not to say that necessarily then the Gentiles who were settled there were promised heaven because they were settled in the land of Canaan. God had made no covenant with them. Remember, the book of Hebrews says, we Gentiles were strangers to the covenant and to its promises. But... That was very significant. To be removed from the land was a curse for them. Uh, and now what I want to do is I want to divide this remaining part of the chapter into three parts for us. Number one, we see, however, in verses 24 to 33, that the nations that come into the land of Canaan end up rejecting God too. They end up rejecting the gospel, to put it in New Testament language. The nations which are planted in the land of Canaan from the Assyrian nations reject the gospel. That's number one. Point number two is a warning for us that we beware of trying to serve two masters. One of the reasons we're going to see that we know they rejected the Lord is because they try to serve two masters. And Jesus told us you cannot serve two masters. So the second point, number one, the gospel is rejected by the Gentiles, brought into the land. Number two, beware of trying to serve two masters. And then finally, number three, plus applications. Number three, we see that in Jesus Christ, the faithful king, the gospel does go to both Israel and the nations. That in Jesus Christ, as our faithful king, God shows himself in the end to be faithful both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And then we'll make application. So those are our three thoughts here today. Number one is that the nations reject the gospel. Now look with me at verse 24 and following here. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kotha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim, all these places where the Assyrian king had conquered and where they had lived, and he brings them into 
the land. So they possessed Samaria, lived in its cities. So they're transplanted into the cities of Israel, northern Israel. This, now we're not talking about Judah and Benjamin here. We're talking about the ten northern tribes. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So there's where the story gets kind of interesting and a little strange. So God brings these Gentiles in his providence into the land, but then he raises up these lions, and some of these lions uh, end up killing some of these foreigners who are in the land. And as one commentator said, it shows that God is uh, God of all creatures, whether they be lions or lice. And, uh, and here, the people cry out to the king of Samaria. And they send an envoy to the king of Samaria, and they say, we've got a problem going on in Israel. You've planted all of these people in the land of Canaan, and the, the lions are killing people. And now, they have enough sense, think about this, they have enough sense to realize that it may be because they are offending the deity of that land. Which shows the, the stubbornness and the insolence of the people of God. That here you have Gentile, pagan, idolaters, and yet they have enough sense to recognize we need to figure out what to do about this situation. And so the king of Assyria commands that a priest be taken from among the Jews and sent back to Israel. Now, maybe they should have raised up a prophet, sent a prophet instead. That might have been more effectual. But they send a priest, and he goes to Bethel. And he begins to teach the people of there that how they are to observe the ways of the Jews and the God of Israel. Now, so he does that, and that ends up bringing relief. But here's the part that I want you to hear with regard to point number one. Even though they are taught by the priest how to serve the living God, they, the Gentiles, still reject the living God and refuse to serve him alone. That priest, if he was doing his job faithfully, should have told them, that he alone is God, he is the living God, there is no other God, and that they need to reject their idols. Now, there's nothing explicit in the text to say whether he was faithful to that message or not. We know from the New Testament that the Apostle Paul was faithful to that message, right? Because we know that he said that the goddess Artemis is of no value, and the people began rejecting this to the point even the silversmiths were losing business and they were getting upset, and so they went after Paul and his companions. So we know that the gospel, as it goes out to the Gentiles, is always to teach people not only to put their faith in God, but to put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. We preach a gospel, not because we're proud, not because we're arrogant, but we have to preach the gospel that is exclusive in Jesus Christ because the Bible makes it clear there's no salvation under any other name than the name of Jesus Christ. And so we are not coming to our culture and our neighbors and trying to be arrogant, and we're not trying to be proud but we are trying to teach them the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus Christ. 
that no man comes to the Father but by me, says Jesus. And if Jesus is to be Lord, he is to be our Lord exclusively. You shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment. Jesus said that the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now imagine if God had told you likewise, which he does in a sense, to love your wife that way, right? Because you husbands, you are to love your wife as what? Christ loves the church. And Christ gave all for his bride. Then that by necessity means exclusively. That you cannot say that you love your wife while loving other women. We must love our wife and her alone. And so it is all the more with our relationship with God. If we are to have God as our God, he alone must be acknowledged as God. This means that there is no compromising with idols. No compromising with the culture. There is a great antithesis between that which the world worships and that which the true Christian worships. And there is no neutrality in this either. Jesus makes it abundantly plain, if you are not with me, and by that he means exclusively, you are against me. If you are not with me and with me alone, you are against me. Jesus goes so far as to say you must hate your mother and your father. And you're like, what? Yes. Is Jesus saying, forget the fifth commandment? No. But what is he saying? We love God so supremely that all other loves pale to our love for God. God alone is our God. There is no other God. And the Bible in the Psalms even says that he is the God of gods. That even, even if the idols existed, they worship the living God. There is no God but the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the God who was and is and shall be forevermore. And he is to be worshipped. So that the nations, instead, what we read here is that they... Uh, learn the ways of the true and living God, but what do they do? But verse 29, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places. Now, isn't that interesting? That where do they put their false gods? In the very locations where Israel was violating the second commandment. The high places. They said, look, the Jews have already given us these places where we can put our idols. They just put their idols in those places. And so you can read in verse 30 that um, the various nations and ethnic groups had their gods. Commentators um, don't necessarily know a ton of details about some of these gods, but um, nevertheless, it, they're listed for us here. The, the last two that are mentioned may be um, a form of Molech worship. The uh, Adramalech and Anamalech uh, may be uh, a, a reference to the worship of Molech uh, is seeing that they burned their children, which we know was what those who worship Molech did here. Now, 
So as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do so telling people about the exclusivity of Christ as Lord, and that there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. That means we must, as we preach and teach the gospel, we have to tell people about the necessity of repentance from idolatry. If they're unwilling to put away their idols, uh, then they have not truly yet been born again. If they're unwilling to turn away from the sins of the first four commandments, then we know that they truly have not experienced a true conversion. A true conversion will give them a hatred for their idols. It will, it, it will, it will give them a sense of revulsion within themselves to think that they formerly were serving Satan through these images, these false images. And they, they will, uh, and, and look at the book of Acts. I mean, what do we see? We see people turning in their idols and their magic books to be burned. Uh, what does Paul tell the, tell the people in Thessalonica? He says, I know the gospel really came among you because what? Because you turned away from idols. It, 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 was, it was the turning away from idols that gave Paul assurance that they really had become true Christians. Unfortunately, a lot of times, I think the church, in their desire to try and win converts, compromises and, and allows people to keep their idols and have Jesus at the same time. And that is what we call theologically syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism. It is trying to blend true Christianity with false religion. That's what's going on here with the nations in Israel. But i got to keep moving here. And that is number two. It is a warning to us to beware of trying to serve two masters. Now, this is, applies for us in the New Covenant as well. The Bible says, Jesus has told us, we cannot serve two masters. You, Jesus said you cannot serve God and money or manna. You cannot serve God and this world. And therefore, we must choose the Lord and the Lord alone. You cannot serve God and your peers, young people. Your peers cannot be a source of authority in your life. The Bible says you must choose your friends carefully. Why? Because bad friends, bad company, corrupts good morals. You must have God, and you must choose your peers, your friends, under God, for the glory of God. You must not have God and the values of the culture. You cannot have God plus the culture. Now, we talked about this last week. The culture is trying to conform you and me into their value system. They're putting a pressure on some of you men in work. Now you men, some of you, some of you women in the workplace, you have to go to these meetings in, in order to sit and listen to stuff that is in direct contradiction to Christianity. Because if you don't, you, well, then you're intolerant. And, and we said, I think we're going to see this possibly 
unless God brings grace and revival, this may become more acute in our culture where you're going to have social credit scores and things like that based on your views. And, and, uh, and so the, the culture is trying to conform us into its mold here. We have to be careful that we not serve or try to serve two masters. Now, how do I detect this? Well, it may be you just have to examine your own life. And I can't do that for you. You're, you're going to have to sit quietly before the Lord and, and meditate and think about, am I, in any way, am I giving in too much? Now, you're not trying to be the guy who raise, r waves the red flag in front of the bull. I'm talking to you young men especially, okay? <laughs> I'm not asking you to provoke the culture. But we're asking here, is there any way that I am giving in too much to the values of, of the culture in a way that is compromising my witness for Christ? Um, and, and the way you value time, the way you value money, the way you, you know, value whatever it may be, in your life. And, and the Bible says, search and examine yourself to see if we be in the faith. I can't serve two masters, and I don't want to serve another master. Now, that does not mean, obviously, money is a reality in our lives, right? We cannot escape that. And so that, my, don't hear me saying that, you know, somehow you've, you've got to take on the Mennonite life here. Um, in order to be a faithful Christian or, you know, go into some kind of monasticism here. We don't, we're not saying that, but we are saying that we're trying to bring the culture under the lordship of Christ in our life. And because we're human, peri periodically from time to time, the culture might grow a little bit too much in our life, in our heart. And when we find ourselves drifting from God, I think usually what will happen is as you find yourself maybe backsliding in that way, you'll also find that things like scripture reading and prayer and listening to the preaching well is diminishing in your life. That is, I think there are often the consequences. And so you have to ask yourself, how am I doing? Am I close? Am I keeping communion with the Lord? Um, how's my prayer life? Do I... Do I have a sense of fellowship with God? Am I walking with God like Enoch uh, as I go through this world? You know, is my soul oppressed like Lot? You know, Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's interesting that, you know, we often censor Lot for his failures. But, you know, the New Testament commends Lot in the sense that it says that his soul was oppressed by what was going on around him. He was grieved at, at what was taking place around him? Am I grieved at the sin of my culture? Or am I making peace within myself with the culture at large and its values? Are my views beginning to shift? Am I beginning to get okay with fornication? Am I, am I getting okay with uh, impurity of thoughts and words? Is my language starting to get more coarse? Am I, am I taking on cuss words like some of my buddies are doing? You know, I, I, and, and we have to look at, am I, am I going backwards 
what Jeremiah said about his people in his own day is that they are always going backwards rather than forwards. We have to take an account of our own situation. Let me move on. Finally, there's good news. And the good news is that God has sent a faithful king, Jesus Christ. We have long waited and anticipated over the centuries. And in the fullness of time, as we saw in high school Sunday school today, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus Christ, born of a woman, the son of David, to come into the world to do what? To bring the ministry of the gospel to the Jew first and then also to the nations here. And so what do we see in Jesus' ministry? We see that Jesus brings the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom, repent for the kingdom of God has come among you, Jesus says, to his own people. But that didn't mean that Jesus thereby had nothing to do with those outside ethnic Judaism. We see, for example, in John chapter 4, that Jesus speaks to a Samaritan. Now, who is the Samaritan woman at the well? She is a descendant of the very people that we're talking about in this chapter. The Samaritans are those who were both Jews, but also Gentiles, that date back all the way back to the Assyrian time. And, and what happened was that there was a little bit of reformation, but it was a very imperfect reformation among these people during the time of Alexander the Great, in which they began to purify a little bit the worship of God, but, it, but they didn't do it perfectly. And so Jesus had to tell the woman at the well that it's not on her mountain that they should be worshiping. They should be worshiping, as we sang in Psalm 87, in Zion. But nevertheless, God brought the gospel, didn't he, to the Samaritans. We see that that whole village turns to Christ. We see with the Syrophoenician woman, she's a woman of Tyre and Sidon region, which is above uh, Israel in the north, on the coast, on the Mediterranean. And you have a Syrophoenician woman here begging Jesus for her child who's demon-possessed to be healed. And what does Jesus do? Jesus puts her off and says that it's not good to give the bread of the children to the dogs. He says to her, you're a Gentile. I've come to the Jew first. And what does she do? She takes that little open door that Jesus gives her and says, ah, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he says, I haven't seen faith like this. And go your way, your your child is healed. We see the Roman centurion a God-fearer who built synagogues for the Jews in his day. And he has a, a servant who is sick. And the Roman centurion just says, says, just say the word. And Jesus says, I've not seen such faith. So we see that the, the gospel is beginning in the earthly ministry of Jesus to begin to impact the Gentiles. And that, but that was just a trickle compared to what would happen until after Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, Jesus went to the cross and he died for Jews and Gentiles. The sins of Jews and Gentiles were placed on Christ and Jesus, the King of Israel, he dies for those sins. And on the third day, God raises Jesus up from the dead and he sits him at the right hand of the Father. And Christ as King, his first act as King is to send the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 
so that what happens? The gospel is preached, but it's not only preached in the native Judean tongue or the Aramaic tongue, which the Jews would have understood, but also it's preached miraculously by guys who previously were just fishermen in languages that other people from the surrounding region of the world could understand as a sign that the gospel now was not only for Israel, but for the whole world. Let me give you a few applications as we close and come to the Lord's table. Number one, Christ is bringing the gospel to the world. That which he began in Acts chapter 1 and 2, he is continuing today. Jesus Christ the King, the faithful King of Israel, the greater King, the one who is greater than David and Solomon combined. Jesus Christ is the King and he is bringing his conquest to all the nations of the earth. The Bible says that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and therefore we, by application, say with the Apostle Paul, be ye therefore reconciled yourself. The application is that you come to faith in Jesus Christ if you have never trusted in the Savior yourself. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent and turn from your idolatry. Don't try and blend worldliness with Christianity. Don't try and look at Jesus as some kind of insurance policy whereby you do what you want in this world, hoping in the end that you can pull out that insurance policy on the last day. Friends, it doesn't work that way. Surrender yourself to the king today. Give yourself to Jesus Christ, not only as Savior, but call him truly from the heart, Lord. And that means obedience. That means repentance. That means faith. That means following him. That means saying no to the idols. That means saying no to the things that have too much of a grip on my life. You know, we know, we see this at a parental level, don't we? we our children, they, they love things from the very beginning. And they learn that one little word very soon in their life, don't they? Mine. Mine. Give me that. No, mine. And we are their parents, aren't we? Because from our heart we cry, mine. We want mine. And Jesus says, no, mine. <laughs> give it to me. And the blessing, one of the blessings is that when you do give it to Jesus, he tends to give it right back to you. The things you surrender for the sake of Christ often come back to you in spades. One other application. Israel's land had become a heathen land. There's a warning to us about the true nature and reality of apostasy. We must be on guard, not only personally, but also corporately, against the land becoming heathen. The church is the land of Israel today. We are the true Jew. We are circumcised, the Bible says, in our heart. We have a circumcision not made with human hands. We have a better circumcision. We have a better covenant. We have better blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. We have the veil that is torn. We can go to the 
throne of grace that was excluded to us in the old covenant. But now through Jesus Christ, the high priest has been opened to us. And so we are the new Israel. We are the chosen people of God. We are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is not to say, do not hear me saying, that God has forever then forsaken the Jew. He has not. He has said that he will yet remember his covenant that he made with ethnic Israel. That when the fullness of Gentiles have been brought in, he also will bring in the Jews. And that's not meaning to say that he excludes Jews even now. Many of us have known people who were ethnically Jewish, Jewish that came to faith in Jesus Christ. But it does mean that we are the people of God. We are the 12 tribes of Israel scattered in Babylon. And as Christ's kingdom goes out among all the nations of the earth, he is building up the Israel. And that all Israel, Romans tells us, all Israel will be saved. God will save all Israel, both Jew and Gentile. Let us uh, give thanks to the Lord for that work of King Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for giving us a perfect and holy and righteous king. We thank you that 